Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Sorry for the distractions here. Isaiah chapter 53. There we go. Isaiah chapter 53 is where we're going to be this morning. Do you remember that day in high school where you waited towards the very end of the year to get what you probably have been waited for all year, the yearbook? Remember that day you got the yearbook? I was on the yearbook staff of my uh, high school yearbook, um, and, and it was fun to actually design the cover and keep it under wraps. Which, when you got your yearbook, what page did you often turn to? To see your face on there to make sure they got the picture right. But there's always that most popular. Who was the most popular? Who was the cutest couple? Who was the most likely to succeed? Um, Those were the people in high school that everybody wanted to be like. Obviously, I didn't make any of those lists. Now, some of you follow Twitter. Twitter's one of the biggest social platforms of our day. People have followers on Twitter. And so some of you may use Twitter. And so if you want to know, I have 216 followers. I'm way up there. Um, But I I went this past week to find out who has the most followers on Twitter for 2020. Okay, and this tells us a lot about our culture. So Barack Obama has 113 million followers. He's number one. Number two is Justin Bieber. He has 109 million followers. Number three is Katy Perry. She has 108 followers, 108 million followers. Rihanna, 96 million. Taylor Swift, 86 million. Cristiano Ronaldo, 83 million. Lady Gaga, 81 million. Ellen DeGeneres, 79 million followers. These are the people that our world values, prizes, follows, wants to keep up with. You got a former president, you've got pop stars, you got an international soccer athlete. And so the question becomes why? Are we drawn to these types of people? Why do we like to follow these people on Twitter? Why do we like to spend our time going to see their movies, going to see their games, listening to their music, following them on Twitter, getting wrapped up in these people that are powerful and popular and prestigious in our culture? Why why do we do that? Well, we have this innate desire to want to be around people that are popular. Whether it's on the yearbook, finding out if you're the most popular couple or you're the most likely to succeed. We want to be around those that are popular, influential, and powerful. That's just the way our world operates. That's what our world values. Popularity, influence. Now last week, we started a sermon series called, What Are the Odds? Isaiah 53. 
700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah gave numerous prophecies that came true concerning Jesus. And if you remember from last week, Isaiah, right out of the gate, told us that Jesus would be victorious. He would be high and exalted. He would be lifted up. He would have victory. But that victory, that exaltation, would come through an excruciating death and physical torture on the cross. He will sprinkle many nations. And we looked last week that when he sprinkles many nations, that means that he's going to um, pour out his blood as a sacrifice for the nations. And we talked about this was a missionary verse, now, how the gospel is going to go out to the nations. And so Isaiah ends with this kind of tension. The gospel's going out to the nations. But let me just ask you a question this morning. Do you see a lot of people flocking to Jesus? around you? Do you see the message of Jesus being embraced by our culture? Or do you see our world rejecting Christianity? Do you see them hating the gospel? Do you see some people just not really caring? So as we continue going through this servant song of Isaiah 53, asking what are the odds that all these prophecies would be fulfilled. This passage leads us to ask some questions. So let's go back and look at the end of chapter 52, where actually the servant song starts. This poem actually starts back in chapter 52. This is what we looked at last week, but let's just give it the context. Okay, So Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they've not heard they understand. Into chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This passage of Scripture leads us to ask three questions. And as I was thinking about these questions, not only were these things that were happening back during Jesus' day, but these are things that are happening today. So here's the first question, question number one. Why do so many people not believe in Jesus? Why do so many people not believe in Jesus? So chapter 52 ends with this missionary gospel going out to the nations and people hearing the message that have never heard it before and and this message going forth. The gospel being proclaimed, the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, who've never heard. And then in verse 1, there's that rhetorical question. 
that's asked. Who has believed what he has heard from us? The rhetorical question Isaiah asks is, who's believing this message? Who's believing the message that we're preaching? And the implied answer to the rhetorical question is not many people are believing. The message of the gospel goes out and there's crickets. There's not a massive response. People aren't receiving the message of the gospel. As a matter of fact, Jesus dealt with this same response back in the Gospel of John. As Jesus is doing miracles and Jesus is, is performing all of these wonders and signs and, and these great teachings in front of these people back in, in John chapter 12, it said, let me get something to drink here real quick. <coughs> in John 12, 37 through 38, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Okay, so right here. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So what John's saying here is Jesus is doing all these miracles. He's doing all these signs, all these wonders, and yet the people aren't believing. Their eyes are blinded to what he's doing. Somehow there's a hardness of heart. They're not receiving Jesus. They're not coming to him. They have hard hearts and blind eyes. And so it was a problem in Jesus' day with him being physically there in front of them, performing miracle after miracle, and there's just this lack of response. There's no belief. People aren't coming to faith in Christ with him physically being there. And so it's the same thing today. So let me just ask you a question. How does anybody come to faith in Jesus? What has to happen if anybody is going to believe the message? If anybody's going to trust Christ for salvation, if anybody's going to embrace Jesus as Lord, what has to happen to that person? What's the condition of all people before they are in Christ? They're spiritually dead and they're blind to the gospel. Romans 3, 10 through 12, Paul says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So there's this universal and comprehensive depravity that every single person is born with. We are all born spiritually dead, not seeking the Lord. So what has to happen if anybody is going to embrace the message? God has to sovereignly overcome that spiritual deadness. God's got to sovereignly overcome that unbelief. And so that's what Isaiah says there. Look at the second part of verse 1. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So what is this arm of the Lord business? Well, it's a metaphor for God's power. Now, we spent almost a year and a half, two years in the book of Exodus. And we know the big, the big event in Exodus is that the Lord delivered them through the Red Sea. And whenever the writers of the Bible talk about the Lord delivering them through the Red Sea, they often go back and talk about the arm of the Lord, the powerful arm of the Lord. Deuteronomy 7, 18 through 19. <coughs> Excuse me. You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. 
The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so will the Lord your God do to all the peoples whom you are afraid. The Lord delivered them by his mighty arm. Isaiah 40, verse 10. Behold, the Lord comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. His arm rules. Isaiah 52.10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So the arm of the Lord is a metaphor for God's salvation, his power. So the arm of the Lord has to be revealed to a person in order for them to believe the message that God has brought to them through Jesus Christ. They are spiritually dead. They are spiritually blind. No one seeks. No one understands. The arm of the Lord has to be revealed to them. Now, do you remember Peter? When Jesus asked the disciples a very important question at Caesarea Philippi. In Matthew 16, 13 through 17, Jesus gathers his disciples and he he asks them some questions. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Okay, here's the question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And who speaks up? Peter. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. So how did Peter make that confession? Did he just come up with it in his own heart, his own mind? Did he just kind of make it up? Was it a product of his intellect? How did he confess, Jesus, you are the Christ? Jesus says, the Father revealed that to you, Peter. The Lord opened your eyes to be able to make that confession. Do you realize that Paul describes the human condition of all of us being blinded? We're blinded by Satan to the gospel, and God must reveal truth. Isaiah, the arm of the Lord has to be revealed. Salvation has to be revealed. Something has to to take the blinders off of your eyes to be able to see the glory of the Lord. And so Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 4-6. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded, okay, blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a mouthful there, but what Paul's saying is, is that Satan has blinded unbelievers from seeing the glory of Christ, and so God has to do this supernatural work to come into our hearts to reveal that truth and take the blinders off of our eyes. Because remember, no one seeks God. No one understands. Left to ourselves, we would never believe the message of the cross. Paul says it's foolishness. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word or the message of the cross is folly, it's moronic, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, 
but to us who are being saved is the power of God. The message of Jesus is foolish. Isaiah says, point blank, who's believed this message? Who really embraces Jesus? Well, only those to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed to them. In other words, only those to whom the Lord has done a supernatural work of grace to give them the ability to see. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So what are the implications of this? It's very simple. Nobody will ever come to faith in Jesus unless God does a work of grace deep in their heart. So what that means is every single one of us is desperately dependent on the Spirit of God to convert, to save our friends, our family members, our co-workers, people around us who don't know Jesus. The Holy Spirit needs to reveal the gospel to those that are lost. So let me ask you a question. Why did you believe? Why did you believe in Jesus? When the message came to you, why did you believe? Was it because you were smart? Is it because you were more spiritually attuned? Is it because you were better than the person next to you and you just, I figured it out? No, the only reason you and I believed is because the arm of the Lord had been revealed to us. God did that supernatural work of grace to take those blinders off of our eyes. God had to go deep into our stubborn, dead, stony hearts and shatter all of our pride and bring us to a point of faith. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Now, the the natural person there is the lost person, the unsaved person. The unnatural person, the unsaved person, really can't understand the things of the gospel unless the Holy Spirit brings that understanding. So Isaiah says, who's believed our message? The message is going out, and there's not a lot of people believing it. If anybody's going to believe it, it has to be the arm of the Lord's been revealed to them. So that's the first thing. The first question is, why are so many people not believing Well, the reason they're not believing is because they are spiritually dead and God has to do a work to reveal truth to them. But here's the second question. Why are so many people not impressed by Jesus? Why are so many people not impressed by Jesus? Now, notice how Isaiah describes his birth. This is all a prophecy about Jesus. Look at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a a little root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus is like this little twig coming out of dry ground. And that was prophesied earlier in Isaiah chapter 11, 1 through 2, that Jesus would come from the lineage of King David, who was David's dad, Jesse. There shall come forth a shoot, a little twig, From the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Okay, so here's the point. In that day, they expected a mighty deliverer to come on the scene like this full-grown oak tree, or like a fruit tree that's bearing full fruit. (coughs) They didn't expect a tiny little twig to pop out of dry ground. 
to be the Messiah. All you dry land farmers out there, I know a little bit about farming, not a lot, but I do know this. Whether it's through irrigation or whether it's dry land or however, you need some type of moisture, don't you? You don't want like a little twig to come out of dry ground. But think about how Jesus came. A little twig out of dry ground. And so what Isaiah is saying is humanly speaking, okay, humanly speaking, don't take me out of context. Humanly speaking, Jesus was a nobody. He didn't have royal fanfare. He was born in a manger, not in a palace. In the words of, these are uninspired words, okay, so this is not from a theologian. This is from rock star Joe Walsh. He was just an ordinary average guy, Jesus. Even the people around him wondered who he was. Matthew 13, 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. The, the people in Jesus' day weren't impressed with him. Who's this guy again? I think he's Joseph's son. He's just a son of a carpenter. They weren't impressed. And frankly, there are many people who don't really care about Jesus. They're ambivalent toward him. They're not impressed. Notice what Isaiah says. He had no form or Majesty. He had no former majesty. The word majesty signifies this outward impressiveness that was usually given to a well-respected person. He had no look about him that people would be drawn to him, humanly speaking. Now, it's interesting. When King David was described back in the Old Testament, King David was described as one that had royal majesty. Listen to how it's described in 1 Samuel 16, 18. One of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. This is David, who's skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. A man of good presence. It's the same thing there as a man of good, good form. David looked good. David looked the part. David was a good-looking, handsome man of valor that people said, That guy is the king. But Jesus, on the other hand, when he came in his beginnings, did not fit the stereotype of what the Jewish people were looking for in their Messiah. When they heard the arm of the Lord, what are they thinking? We want our Messiah to come, and we want him to come in military power, and we want him to kick out the Roman authorities, and we want him to set up his kingship in Jerusalem and rule with a mighty fist with the arm of the Lord and just be this powerful military ruler. They wanted a powerful entrance of a king on the scene. And how did Jesus come? A little shoot out of dry ground. He was born in a manger. Literally, probably a cave in a feeding trough amongst a bunch of barnyard animals in Bethlehem. Grew up in obscurity in Nazareth. Nobody even really knew who he was. And when he came publicly on the scene, not a lot of people were drawn to him in his day. They weren't impressed. They could care less about Jesus. There was an ambivalence. And sadly, there's many people that respond that way today. Yeah, Jesus, he's a good teacher. Yeah, Jesus, he did some cool things, but at the end of the day, I really don't care. He doesn't impress me. I'm ambivalent. I'm apathetic. So that's the second question. 
But here's the third question that this passage of Scripture leads us to ask. Question number three. The, the, the second question is, why do so many people are not impressed with Jesus? They just could care less about Jesus. They're apathetic towards him. They're ambivalent towards him. Here's the next question. Question number three. Why do so many people hatefully reject Jesus? Why do so many people hatefully reject Jesus? There are those that are going to respond with ambivalence. But there are going to be those that are going to respond with antagonism. Sheer, seething hatred for Jesus and the gospel. Notice what verse 3 says. Isaiah repeats the word despised twice. He was despised. Despised. That means he was hated. He was mocked. He was taunted. He was despicable in the eyes of the people. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him. He was despised. Think about how Jesus was treated when he was hanging on the cross. By the Roman soldiers, by the the rulers, and even by that one thief that was next to him that didn't get saved. In Luke chapter 23, 35-39, listen to how Jesus was despised and rejected when he's hanging there on the cross. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. Saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. Saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Notice the wording that's used here in Luke to show how this prophecy came true of Jesus being despised and rejected. It says that the ruler scoffed. It means they they, they stuck their noses up at Jesus. They sneered at him. The Roman soldiers mocked him. Now, how did they mock him? They gave him sour wine. Now, what's the whole issue with sour wine? It was more like a ridiculing joke. It was wine that nobody wanted to drink. They just kind of stuck it up there to Jesus to kind of make fun of him because in their mind, he's this pathetic, pathetic criminal hanging on a cross. But then notice also what the thief, Luke says, the criminal railed at him. That's the way the ESV translates it, railed. It's really in the original language, it's the word blasphemeo. It means to cuss Jesus out. Now think about this for a moment. (laughs) Some of you hear the Lord's name in vain. Jesus heard the Lord's name in vain at himself when he's hanging there on the cross. It's one thing to say the Lord's name in vain. It's, one, it's another thing to actually curse Jesus when he's there at, right next to you while he's hanging at the cross. So, so Jesus is being cussed at. Jesus is being mocked. Jesus is being despised and rejected right there at the cross. Notice what else Isaiah says. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows. Now, this does not mean that Jesus walked around all the time crying and he was a blithering idiot because everything was... It wasn't, didn't mean that Jesus was always walking around crying. That's not what it means. What it means is at that moment when Jesus was about to fulfill his mission of dying on the cross, he experienced extreme sorrow and grief. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? When Jesus was praying... Listen to how Luke describes this. Luke 22, 41 through 44. 
And he, this is Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw from the disciples. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Can you imagine that? Sweating drops of blood being in so much agony. Because he knew, yes, physical torture is coming. But he had to take the the cup, the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's justice. We just sang it earlier. Hallelujah, what a Savior. How does it start? Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So think about these prophecies coming true. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's despised and rejected. He's sneered. He's mocked. He's cussed at. He's at the point of, of agony and grief. He's a man of sorrows. He's, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, so grieved because he knows he's about to go to the cross that drops of, of blood, like sweat, like blood comes down. And then notice what Isaiah says. We, we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. Now, that word esteemed that Isaiah uses here in the original language comes from the word of banking, the world of accounting. Let me just kind of give you that. Basically, let me give you a rough translation of how it would work out. When the world saw Jesus and they added him up on the calculator, it came to a big fat zero. That's the way the world estimated or esteemed. And that's what happened when Jesus came to his own. How does John start his gospel out? John 1, 10 through 11. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His own people did not esteem him. His own people rejected him. Now think about the depravity and corruption of the human mind and heart. Think about this for a moment. People can hear the gospel preached clearly. People can see the Son of God hanging next to them on the cross. People can hear about the forgiveness of sins. They can even to this day hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And they still come to the conclusion as they see all of that that it's just a big fat zero. Not only... Not worth even considering, I'm ambivalent, but actually worth rejecting with hatred, antagonism. It happened to Jesus while he was in the flesh there dying on the cross, and it happens today. People hate Jesus. People are ambivalent to Jesus. People don't esteem Jesus. And only the sovereign grace of God can overcome this type of of unbelief that resides deep in the heart of an unsaved person. So let me just ask a fundamental question. Because all this passage of Scripture is leading us, it's leading us down this path of uh, nobody's believing Jesus. They're rejecting Jesus. They're not esteeming Jesus. They're despising Jesus. And so let's just ask the fundamental question. Why do people reject Jesus? Why do people, as they say, hide their faces from Jesus? 
Why is the cross so offensive? Why do people not like Jesus? And here's the answer. Here's the answer. When people truly come to grips with who Jesus really is and what he really did on the cross, it forces them to face the fact that they are sinners before a holy God and deserve nothing but justice. And the only way they can be saved is to admit their sin and cast themselves at Jesus' mercy. People don't want to own up to their sinfulness. They don't want to admit they need a Savior. They're infected with sin. How does Isaiah start the book? I mean, we're in Isaiah chapter 53, but how does Isaiah start this whole book? Back in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, this is what Isaiah says. He's talking to Israel here. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Isaiah paints a picture here of sin as a sickness. From the top of your head to the sole of your feet, Israel, you're infected. And it's not with coronavirus And it's not with pneumonia, and it's not with cancer. You're infected with something far deeper and far graver. It's sin and rebellion. And God alone must sovereignly overcome this sickness, this condition with his grace. You see, people aren't impressed with Jesus. Because during his day, they saw him as a weak savior. He's born in obscurity. He's born in Bethlehem. He's a carpenter's son. He's from Nazareth. He didn't come to overtake the government. We're just not that impressed with him. People hate Jesus, even when he's hanging on the cross in front of them, because they don't want to admit that he is king of kings, and they don't want to repent of their personal sin, and they recoil at the thought of Jesus dying on the cross. So there are are two ways you can respond this Easter, as we approach Easter, to Jesus that you see in this passage of Scripture. You can respond, number one, with ambivalence. I could care less. Jesus, he's a good guy. He's a moral leader. He had some great things to say. He did some cool miracles. But at the end of the day, I really don't care. He's not going to change my life in any way. I'm ambivalent. I'm not going to surrender my life to Jesus. I'm just going to go on as life as usual. That's one way you can respond is with ambivalence. Now, another way you can respond is with antagonism. I hate Jesus. I hate the gospel. I'm offended by the cross. I don't want to be told I'm a sinner. I'm going to be antagonistic. So you can respond with ambivalence or antagonism. Both of those are deadly and are disastrous. Let me tell you the biblical way to respond. Not with ambivalence, not with antagonism, but with adoration where you bow before the king and you give your life to Jesus. You trust him. You follow him. You love him. You know, we asked three questions about this text today. But let me ask just one final question and make it very personal. Not a question of the, not questions of people out there. Why do people? Let me ask you personally. How will you personally Respond to Jesus this Easter. Ambivalence 
antagonism or adoration. This was read earlier in our call to worship. John 1, 12-13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's very clear the Bible says you must receive Jesus by believing in his name. If you have not received Jesus by believing in his name, then do so now. Do so now. Come to faith in Jesus. Place all of your faith in Jesus. Own up to your sin and find forgiveness in Jesus. Because when you do, you won't be this sinful rebel on the outside of the family, rejected, but you'll be a child of God, loved and accepted. As I was meditating on this passage of Scripture, just look at the wording here again in Isaiah. Instead of turning your face away from Jesus, as one from whom people turn their face, instead of turning your face away, would you turn your face towards Jesus in faith? Instead of seeing Jesus as unimpressive, notice what it says. He had no beauty that we should desire him. Would you desire Jesus this morning? Don't turn your face away from him. Desire him. Come to him in faith. Instead of seeing Jesus as unimpressive, unimpressive, desire him. Instead of rejecting and despising him, would you esteem him? Would you trust in him? Would you cast yourself totally at his mercy to save you? How does Isaiah start this passage of Scripture? Who's heard the message? Okay, let me ask you the question. Who's heard the message? And you can say, I have. I have no excuse. I've heard the message. The arm of the Lord hopefully has been revealed to me today because I've heard the message of the gospel. So you have no excuse to walk away from here being ambivalent or antagonistic. You can walk away from here being one that adores Jesus. And my prayer for you is that the arm of the Lord has been revealed to you and the blinders have been taken off your eyes so that you can see Jesus. And so here's the thing. If the arm of the Lord has been revealed to you today, if Jesus has been revealed to you, if you've heard the message, then would you not right now Look at him. Trust in him. Cast yourself upon him. Believe in him. Give yourself to Jesus alone. It amazes me that on the cross where he's hanging there in the flesh, people seeing the Son of God there, a guy next to him would cuss him out. Or people would walk by and could care less. I'm afraid there's a lot of people this time of year as Easter's approaching with this whole coronavirus thing happening and as I shared earlier about how Charles Spurgeon's church responded during the time of cholera. Let's take advantage of the opportunities to encourage people to not just hate Jesus or not just to ignore Jesus but to look to Jesus. Let us in our lives be those that point people to Jesus. Let us esteem him. Let us desire him. Let us look to him in faith and point others to him as well. Because he is king of kings and he's lord of lords. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Let that not be said of us as we live our lives this week to the glory of the Lord. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we go into a time of prayer. We want to be a type of people that adore your son Jesus. We want to esteem him as the highest. We don't want to turn our faces, but we want to look at him intently, fix our eyes upon him. Lord, help us to be people that go tell the message of the gospel. As in such a time as this, when there's uncertainty in our nation, and people may be more open to hearing the gospel, may we go share the message and pray for the arm of the Lord to be revealed to those. That they would truly hear and see the glory of who Jesus is. Lord, as we approach Easter in the next few weeks, would we always be in an attitude of expectation, of joy, of thankfulness for what you've done for us, Jesus, in the cross and in your resurrection. Lord, help us to be people that live with hope. Help us to be people that trust in your sovereignty. Help us to people, be people that um, do not walk in fear, but we walk by faith in a sovereign God who's still on his throne. May you grant us grace and peace this week. Lord, we don't know what's going to face us. We don't know what decisions the government's going to make, our governor's going to make, Congress is going to make. Lord, our whole world could be coming unglued with a lot of things. Lord, we don't know. But one thing we do know is that you're on your throne and you rule and you reign. And as I said earlier, you reign and people need the gospel. And those are two important things we need to remember. You reign. People need the gospel. Let us live like we believe that this week and give us the power to do that. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.